This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Many hobbyists know that clownfish and a few other marine species are now bred by fish farms for the industry. However, most other marine aquarium fish are even more difficult to breed and are available only as wild-caught specimens. How can we ever crack their breeding and culture codes? Rising tide conservation an initiative spearheaded by the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund is a collaborative effort designed to advance methods and disseminate information regarding captive breeding of marine fishes and to provide alternatives to collection. Eric Cassiano and Matt Whitrich, two scientists based at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory and members of the initiative, have been concentrating their efforts on culture methods of a variety of species, including anthias, tangs, dragonettes, and porkfish. Join us as we discuss the opportunities and challenges in their work with rising tide conservation. We'll be right back with Eric and Matt after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guests today are Eric Cassiano and Matt Whitridge, aquaculture research scientists based at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Hi, Eric and Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Roy. Hello, Dr. Roy. Thanks so much for having us. So you guys have been involved in some really interesting work, and we're going to kind of get into that in a second. But let me start with you, Eric. Can you tell us briefly how you ended up working on marine aquarium fish culture and live feeds after having worked originally with oysters? Yeah, right. Um, I, you know, I started out working with oysters at, at OSU and then working with clams at UF. And then my master's thesis focused on evaluating Florida pompano larvae that, were, that had been fed noctiliated calanoid copepods suited Athens pelagicus. And why that actually is important for marine ornamental fish is a lot of those, the larval phase of a lot of these marine ornamental fish species uh, require a, a, a copepod as a first feed or some sort of marine zooplankton as a first feed other than what is typically used in, uh, in larval culture currently, which is rotifers and, uh, and artemia. So, so that's sort of why I got hired. Like, why that, that's why Craig sort of booked uh, me up and, and hired me. And Craig's the director of the lab, of course. But copepods, right. what, can you tell us, when you say copepods, some folks may not be familiar with uh, what a copepod is. Right. Copepods, um, they're, uh, they're one of the most ubiquitous marine organisms in the, 
in the zooplankton. So a lot of these fish species, ornamental or otherwise, when they're in their larval form, um, they're exposed to that as a prey item when they first begin feeding. Uh, copepods are found in literally any speck of water that you find, freshwater or marine. So, so, so like I said, they're, they're pretty ubiquitous. They're, they're pretty everywhere, and they're quite varied in morphology and form. So, so they're, they're actually a, a good species to grow for that first feeding phase, but they're, they're quite different from species to species and group to group. Okay, so now Matt, I know some of our listeners may have heard your Aquarium Mania podcast when you talk to us about breeding mandarin gobies. For those that haven't, can you give us some highlights of your, uh, your PhD work and how this fit in with the work you're doing now? Um, sure, yeah. I, I've been involved with uh, marine ornamental aquaculture for, for quite some time. Uh, I think I, um, originally I, I started breeding fish when I was about 15, and that led ultimately to, uh, to a PhD program in, in actually functional morphology. Uh, and this actually carries over with, with what Eric was talking about, about the copepod. So basically what I did for my PhD research was trying to figure out the morphological attributes of these larvae that make them either successful or, or not successful at capturing prey. You know, for copepods, for example, there's over 14,000 species of copepods, and all these larval fish, they're actually highly selective in what they choose. So, so my work basically focused on uh, what drives that selectivity and how these larvae are basically different um, as they develop and, and how selectivity works and how we can sort of recreate that incompatibility to, to overcome some of these hurdles. And I guess maybe just to bring it back a little bit in case some folks aren't familiar with, um, when you say larvae, how old and how big are, are marine larvae? Uh, marine larvae, they, they vary in size. They're quite considerable differences. But a larva, as soon as a, uh, an embryo hatches from an egg, it, it's called a larva. Um, but some of the fish we work with, they're as small as one millimeter. Um, one of the more recent successes we've had is the Lancer Dragonette. And they actually start feeding at 1.09 millimeters, and they hatch, uh, actually considered a larva, at under a millimeter. The average marine fish hatches out probably 2.5, 3 millimeters long and initiates feeding around that size. Um, but to throw it in comparison even more, uh, a newly hatched clownfish larva is about 4 millimeters, and that's sort of the industry standard of what we're used to rearing. Uh, and hobbyists should be familiar with that as well. But there's a considerable size range for what's considered a larva. So that's kind of the trick. These are really tiny fish, and you've got to find really tiny prey items or, or basically live foods that they're going to eat then, right? Absolutely. Tiny fish and tiny, tiny prey. So you guys are both working here at the Tropical Aquaculture Lab. Um, are, are you guys getting along, or are, you guys, are there any fights at all? Well, you know, our, our doors are closed to each other right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I no, think Eric and I, we actually we complement each other very good. Eric is a live food expert. Um, he's really good at culturing these things. Um, so if you can figure out what they eat and how to culture them, I think together we, we're capable of doing some, some pretty awesome things. So I'm really happy to be working with Eric. Oh, me too, Matt. <laughs> that's good. I, I, can, I hear the love. That's great. Can you give us a little history of the Tropical Aquaculture Lab, I guess, and how this ties in, how its work is tied in with marine aquarium fish reproduction? Uh, yeah, the, the University of Florida, uh, it's really an amazing thing. It has an amazing history uh, in, the, in the freshwater ornamental aquaculture. Uh, it was started in, in, I think, around 1996 by Craig Watson, and it quickly amassed uh, an incredible team of reproductive biologists, aquatic vets, uh, and extension personnel. Uh, Florida is one of the biggest producers of freshwater fish uh, for the aquarium industry in the country. And, uh, and this lab really helps drive the industry. It helps come up with some breeding techniques. Uh, it helps the farmers arrange some of the import-export permits and, uh, and just some of their overall problems. Uh, so it's a really good place to start the marine ornamental aquaculture lab is the infrastructure and the, and the talent are already in place. Uh, so I'm really excited to be part of the team. But one of the greatest things, too, is um, in 1976, this is really the birthplace of marine ornamental aquaculture in the country. Uh, Martin Moe and Frank Hoff started breeding clownfish commercially over in St. Petersburg. So it, it's kind of neat to be back in that, that feeling, that, that area. 
So let's get to Rising Tide Conservation now. Can you tell us a little more about Rising Tide Conservation, the initiative, and uh, what it's all about? Yeah, sure. Uh, Rising Tide the Conservation Initiative was started by SeaWorld Bush Gardens, and it's headed up by Dr. Judy St. Ledger of SeaWorld. And it consists of numerous research facilities, industry partners, and AZA institutions that are all dedicated to solving problems associated with marine ornamental fish production, and, and specifically those surrounding pelagic spawning species, which is tended to be the bottleneck in, in marine ornamental fish production. So it's basically forming this cohesive group of individuals with different areas of expertise that can approach problem solving collectively. And it's worth mentioning uh, that the initial funding for, for, for a lot of these projects has, has been provided by Seaboard Bush Gardens, USDA, Shedd Aquarium, Petco, and AZA itself. Can you uh, tell folks what AZA is in case they ha- they're not familiar with AZA? Yeah, sorry. Um, AZA is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, so a lot, a lot of these, are, uh, like Florida Aquarium, Georgia Aquarium, they're all part of this, uh, this, this large association. You mentioned, uh, so it sounds like a really big group of, of folks. Yeah, uh, eight individuals, 47 institutions along that line, something like that. So what is the role for each of the major groups of collaborators? Well, for instance, it really just depends. So for our role will be to research that's aimed at answering some of these problems, uh, like, like marine ornamental fish production. Um, at the first Rising Tide meeting, we identified five species that we decided to focus upon as a, as a part of this, uh, you know, initial start. So, and those five species were yellow tang, Pacific blue tang, Bangai cardinal fish, emperor angelfish, and Bartlett xanthia. And these species were chosen because they're highly prized in the aquarium trade, and they all have some sort of sustainability issue associated with them. Uh, another reason why these species were were picked was because unlocking the keys to the production of one species will likely lead to the production of numerous species in, in their respective groups. So, for example. Uh, production protocols for Bartlett's anthias should open the door for other anthia species as well. And in some of these aquariums, they harbor these species within their exhibits. And so that's a huge advantage for, uh, for a research facility uh, like ourselves, that we don't have to uh, dedicate time and energy and labor to, to maintaining broodstock when the established populations are already available. And then, of course, industry partners help put that uh, product available for other uh, AZA institutions and also at the hobbyist level for uh, consumers. So you, you've got scientists, you've got AZA institutions, the public aquarium, many people visit every year, and then you've got the commercial producers. So it sounds like a really great group of folks to kind of push this forward. So you mentioned the public aquaria. Um, how are they actually, I guess, helping with this You know, specifically? Um, you mentioned they've got different types of fish that you may be interested in others that are, I assume, spawning in their tanks, or what's going on with all that? Right, right. The initial project for Rising Tide is funded through um, the AZA uh, Conservation Endowment Fund grant. Um, so we've targeted aquarium exhibits at, at eight different AZA institutions around the country. And those, and those institutions are Columbus Zoo, Florida Aquarium, Georgia Aquarium, Henry Dorley Zoo, SeaWorld Shed, and, uh, Steinhardt, and Virginia Aquarium. Uh, and they all contain these candidate species w- within their exhibits. Um, so then we try to collect these eggs from the exhibits, ship them to the Tropical Aquaculture Lab, and run experimental trials, which are focused on obtaining information to help us better understand their embryology and larval development. And uh, one of the biggest advantages of, the, of this project is that these exhibits routinely house 100 or plus species. So you know, not only are we getting eggs from these candidate species, which, which I just listed, but also eggs of other species as well. And many of these species we've never been examined before, so it's a huge advantage for us as a research facility and, and, and the whole group as a whole. How are you guys collecting these? How does that work? Uh, we've developed a really 
simple floating egg collector, basically just modified a plastic tub um, that is designed to uh, skin the surface of the water. So it just floats and it skins the surface of the water and concentrating the eggs inside of the tub. Uh, it's using basic, simple airlift technology. And it just floats right in, right in the exhibit itself, either at night or, um, or in the morning whenever these fish are spawning, whenever the, the aquarius identifies that the fish are spawning. And it's worked relatively well, surprisingly so. So the, um, I guess the eggs are floating up to the top, and these things get into the basket somehow, is, is True. what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. What species have you both been getting from these different AZA institutions? You know, I actually compiled a list here of the species that we've identified that, that, that we have been getting. I'll name them off. Green chromis, seabrim, pajama cardinal fish, sergeant majors, leaf scorpion fish, seaweed blenny, bar gobies, yellow tangs, blue tangs, orange shoulder surgeon fish, bat fish, and several species of grunts. So that's a pretty wide list of species. Have you guys had any successes with any of those in terms of getting them beyond you know, the egg stage? Right. So for me, the simple fact that we're able to collect these eggs at all is a success. I mean, isolating tens of thousands of one-millimeter diameter eggs from 10,000-plus gallon exhibits, packing them and shipping them to the tropical aquaculture lab and having them hatch successfully uh, is definitely a, a, a success of the project. And, and although proper protocols are still being established, the fact that it worked really bodes well for future endeavors with these aquarium partners. And, uh, and also identifying them. Uh, once we get them I mean, as eggs, uh, I know most of the listeners may not know, but most marine fish eggs are, they look very similar, so it's very tricky to, to identify them, especially to the species level, when they're at that stage. So we partnered with Tom Walker from the University of Florida, as well as Lee Wake from Smithsonian Institute, and, and we're developing molecular techniques to help with this identification process. So as far as the law of rearing is concerned, we've had various levels of success uh, there as well. We've gotten some first feeding blue tangs, which we'll call is one of the target species that we mentioned earlier. Uh, we've gotten green chromas to approximately 20 days post-hatch. Uh, we've successfully reared Monodactylus argentus, or moonfish. Uh, we've successfully reared and returned back to their respective aquariums, seabrim, uh, French grunt, and porkfish. And we've conducted experiments identifying an appropriate early feeding protocol for porkfish. And commercial producers are, as we speak, growing them from eggs provided by SeaWorld. So that partnership between the commercial producers and an AZA institution is as well a success for the project. Well, that's great. I actually want to go into a little bit more detail with some of those successes that you've had in our second half. But why don't we take a break and we'll continue our discussions with Eric and Matt after these messages from our sponsors. I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guests, Eric Cassiano and Matt Whitridge, aquaculture scientists working at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory with marine aquarium species, reproduction, and culture. 
So, Eric, you talked quite a bit about some of the um, kind of the background of Rising Tide. Matt, you talked a little bit about the history of the uh, Tropical Aquaculture Lab and how it all kind of fits in. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the details, what makes all of this really difficult and how you guys are setting up the work you're doing to try to further the culture of a lot of these really tricky species. I guess maybe we'll start with some of the, I guess, the dragonets and the gobies. You want to talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing with these, Matt? And also, I guess, for the, the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this group, you know, kind of give them a little summary again of, of what a dragonet is and, and some of the common species they may be familiar with, actually, as dragonets. Right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I can back up uh, just a, a little bit further, too, uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of a history on, on or not really a history, but talk about ri- why rising tide is so important. Uh, but, you, you know, historically, the marine ornamental aquaculture industry uh, or sort of advances that have taken place have sort of taken, taken place behind closed doors. You know, the commercial guys, if they figured out how to raise a clownfish or a, a bangai cardinalfish or a dottyback, uh, it, it was going to make them money, and they didn't really want to talk about it. So there hasn't been really anyone doing the research or showing people how to do this or anyone really advancing the field. And that's what Rising Tide, really, this is the largest uh, sort of initiative with, with a lot of people that are talking, that are getting involved, and really sharing ideas. And, and this, in my opinion, is really what's going to advance and, and kind of come up with the next leaps and bounds uh, forward so we can raise these, these anteus and angelfish. So ultimately, we have these five target species, and these are our top tier. This is ultimately what we're trying to get to. Uh, but in the meantime, we're using model pelagic spawners. And, and for me, one of my favorite model groups is, is the dragonets. Um, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of experience with the group over the last few years. Uh, so for me, it's just a great model to, to answer some of these detailed questions about incubation development um, and just some of these overall um, ideas that affect survival. Um, but what we've been working with lately, uh, the, the Lancer Dragonet, and this is a local species that is extremely rare in the trade, um, but some of the more popular species would be the, the mandarin, the psychedelic mandarin, they call them, um, the spotted mandarin. Um, and these are just uh, sort of really colorful fish that hop, hop along on the bottom. Um, they're commonly called blennies or gobies, um, but in, in reality, they actually make up a family all of their own, the dragonets. Um, so, so we succeeded with the Lancer dragonet, and to me, this is a, a huge model species. They have some of the smallest eggs we've seen in the lab. So the eggs, they're pelagic eggs, and they, ha- or they, they come out around 500 microns, so just a tiny, tiny egg. Um, and this, to my knowledge, I think it represents one of the smallest first feeding larvae uh, ever recorded as well at about 1.09 millimeters. So trying to feed something that small really was a challenge. Um, but the way that we do this, we, we kind of come up with a structured um, regime of what we do. And we do this with all the species. And, and in reality, it, it's a proven technique uh, that we can use to, to kind of figure out what they eat and how to raise them. Uh, but we offer them uh, kind of a, a slew of wild plankton, everything that they would be exposed to in the wild. We let them feed for, uh, for a set amount of time, and then we actually take them out and, and see what they ate. We see what, what's in their gut. Uh, so we actually have to do really, really tiny dissections to see what these fish ate. Um, and in the end, uh, we have talented guys like Eric uh, identifying the, these zooplankton organisms and culturing them and, and, and trying to come up with these commercial protocols. Uh, but the Lancer Dragonet was a huge success. Uh, these guys are, are just absolutely tiny, have a lot of bottlenecks through larval development, and they also have almost a 60-day pelagic larval phase, which is a really long time for a, for a fish to stay up in the water column. Um, so, so most fish, most of the fish that we're dealing with, they're pelagic spawners. So they release these tiny buoyant eggs that float around in the open ocean for about three weeks usually, and then they settle back to the benthic habitat or the coral reef where the, the adults are found. Uh, so a 60-day pelagic phase is a really long time. Um, so we, we were successful with the Lancer Dragonet, and then most recently we started playing around with the Oscillated Dragonet. Uh, so, and if you listen to the last podcast of mine, uh, we talked about the, the mandarins, the, the green mandarin and the spotted mandarin. 
And these are two species that there there is a commercial protocol in place. Uh, Oceans Reefs and Aquariums, the marine fish hatchery over in Fort Pierce, is successfully raising these fish and offering them them to the trade. Um, but the oscillated dragonets, commonly called scooter blennies and red scooter blennies, um, they reproduce in a similar fashion, but they, they do have bottlenecks through larval development. They're, the first feeding larvae are a little bit smaller, and they're highly selective. So we were able to kind of identify what those larvae were eating, uh, and we're working on culturing that organism now and, and trying to get uh, a, another commercial protocol in place. So pretty good successes so far. Now, you mentioned you know, wild zooplankton. Can you kind of describe for the, for the folks listening um, how you're actually getting these zooplankton, these, again, real small organisms that these guys are eating? Yeah, definitely. Wild zooplankton, it encompasses a wide variety of organisms. Um, there's probably over a thousand different species that we're talking about. Uh, but generally, um, Eric talked about copepods earlier, and they're usually the dominant plankton, planktonic organism. Uh, but there's all kinds of things, ciliates, microzooplankton, and there's, there's all kinds of things in that plankton. Uh, but what we do is we basically take a, a glorified pantyhose, or we take a plankton net, and we, we tow it through the water, and we, we sieve it out, and we try to concentrate the organisms that we do want uh, to use as food, and we try to get rid of the, the nasty guys that are going to eat the larvae or, or bloom up in the tank and kind of pollute the water. We go back to Mother Nature. I mean, ultimately, Mother Nature has the protocol available for us out there. We just have to learn how to tap into it and, and understand how these things are surviving and, and what they're eating in the wild. And you mentioned pantyhose. So do you use a lot of Eric's pantyhose, or are you actually... We do, we do. Eric has a, has a good supply in his desk over there. Yeah, okay, I mean, the mine are mostly fishnets, so <laughs> they be a little too large. They're probably too big. That's yeah. true. Eric, you, yeah. you mentioned um, pork fish, and I know there was a whole process involved you know, from the SeaWorld to uh, you guys being able to actually get them to, a, you know, a really good size. Can you kind of go into some detail as to how within the rising tide kind of framework that all occurred? Yeah, the good people over at SeaWorld were uh, collecting eggs from one of their exhibits and, and they would uh, ship them to us. Uh, we we raised them up. Uh, we would identify what was going to be the appropriate larviculture protocol or the appropriate first feeding regime. And as it turns out, this species actually lends itself well to being fed rotifers. So this is this is wonderful for commercial production and, and some of those industry partners that are part of Rising Tide uh, because they already have in place uh, uh, rotifer culture protocols and, and, and using artemia, which is what portfish actually did well on as opposed to being fed copepod. Uh, so those protocols were already in place. So to take a fish like that and, and make it available to a commercial producer is much more attractive than trying to revamp their whole live feeds regime um, altogether. And, and it really shows that this is possible. It is possible for us to harvest eggs from an AZA institution like SeaWorld and then and grow them up and actually give them back to SeaWorld, some level of sustainability for, for the aquariums to display there. So that's great. So they don't have to necessarily go back and collect more if, if they can continue to harvest, have them kind of raised up and, and then return to the facility. Right, true. And, and perhaps, you know, University of Florida can't speak for this, but perhaps there could be some sort of a, of, of a contractual agreement between an aquarium and a commercial producer where the eggs are shipped to the commercial producer and then, you know, they get to, they, they get first choice of, of the fish that they want and the rest can be sold back into the marketplace. But that's beyond the realm of you know, the University of Florida, so... But ideally, that is a level of sustainability that's not been seen before um, within these AZA institutions. So, so that's encouraging, very encouraging, and, 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 and you know, a success. Now, you mentioned also tangs. Um, you know, either Eric or Matt, if you guys, you guys want to discuss a little bit. I know, um, I believe you mentioned in the, in the 
initial kind of list of five yellow tangs and Pacific blue tangs as being of interest. Can you kind of remind us why those are of interest for this project and then also some of the early work or, or preliminary work you have with those two? Uh, yeah, the tanks are, are, are just hugely popular, heavily traded fishes in the marketplace. Um, and almost daily now, it seems that Hawaii, and especially the yellow tang, the yellow tang is just a hugely iconic fish in the marine aquarium trade, bright yellow, yellow just a gorgeous fish. Um, and, it, and it seems every pet store out there has one. And, and there's all, usually there's, there's a lot of threats coming in from Hawaii about banning the aquarium industry and the collection of wild tanks from there. Um, there's been some evidence that, that shows that the populations are declining. Uh, a lot of these organizations are, are blaming the aquarium industry, uh, but I- inevitably it's many interconnected factors, pollution, um, climate change, you name it. There, there's a number of reasons, but uh, the Gold Coast is no longer, um, let's say, extremely gold. So th- there's been a, a number of people in research institutes uh, that are realizing that the breeding yellow tang would just be a, a huge model species, and not only for, uh, you know, kind of, returning the gold to the Gold Coast, but to really, as, as a research organism, if we can unlock the secrets to the yellow tang, uh, then inevitably we would unlock the secrets for uh, innumerable species of pelagic spawning fishes, the butterfly fish, the angelfish, the tangs, um, you, you name it. Uh, but Charles Laley um, from the Oceanic Institute, he's been working for about 10 years on the yellow tang, and he's made some, uh, some tremendous uh, advances with it. So we're hoping to follow in his footsteps and hopefully um, come up with some other keys working with him. Have you done some work with the blue tanks also? I, I um, heard some mention of that. Yeah, I'm actually really excited. Uh, so we've been working with the Columbus Zoo, um, and we've been getting some, some viable samples. We actually sent out some eggs for DNA from Tom Waltzik from the University of Florida, um, and he gave us some pretty interesting results. He said that we've been working with uh, Pacific blue tanks and, and also orange shoulder tanks. Um, at the time, we didn't know necessarily what we were working with, um, but we were excited that we actually had larvae in the tanks, and they were successfully feeding. We have some microscope shots of uh, some blue tangs that are just chock full of copepods in their gut. Um, so it, it definitely was encouraging. We didn't bring them too far. I think we got them to, to maybe 10 days, but it, it is a huge step in the right direction, so we're getting there. That sounds great. Now, I know you, you two have also been working on Bartlett's anthias. Can you Maybe talk a little bit about what the Antheus fish are for folks that aren't familiar with that group and then um, some of the work that you've done so far with them. Yep, I'm going to field this one to Eric. Those are Eric's babies. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, Antheus are a, a group of serranids, so they're in, the, they're in that grouper family. They're, uh, I would say, highly, highly valuable within that marine ornamental trade, and they're a pretty diverse group, and, and, they're, and they're gaining in popularity. They, too, also produce a very small pelagic larvae. I, I believe they were right at 2 millimeters when they're ready to eat, something like that, or 1.8. You know, not as quite as small as the dragonette. So, um, but what we're having, the, the issue with the antheus for us is, is more of a, of, of a broodstock issue where we're having trouble getting those eggs to hatch. Um, so we're getting them to produce eggs, and then we seem to have some, some, level, some high level of, of fertilization, like 85%, but the eggs are just not hatching. So whether it's a, a water quality issue, or, or something along that line, we, we're trying to tease that apart. But that sort of also sheds a light on, on the other issues. It's not just always a, a live feed issue or, or getting them to eat or just an environmental issue. There's also, you know, water quality as well. Um, it, it's hard for us to, to have to replicate what goes on in the, in the wild in, in such a controlled environment. But they are a pretty valuable fish. I, I don't know what they go for on the market, but they're, but, but they're very beautiful. And, and then we have high hopes that we're going to be able to, um, to rear them once we solve this water chemistry issue is what, what we think it is. So you mentioned that you, um, you're breeding them. So you guys actually have a number of 
broodstock as well at the laboratory. And oh, yeah. You guys yeah, can, I, yeah, you I, can I, maybe sorry. discuss yeah, that. We, sure. We, we have about a, a hundred or so. I, I forgot the number. We've been doing some broodstock experiments. We had them in an experimental system where we had them in pairs and harems, and we were, we were getting some egg production out of them. But, but overall, they seem to do better in, 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 in a large group and, and let that social hierarchy just dictate who's going to spawn and who's not going to spawn. And that just seems to be how they do best. And then out in the, and out those natural uh, sunlight conditions, we also have them indoors. So, so you know, we've conducted experiments trying to, to, to determine if, it was a, 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 if we can put them in harems or pairs or, or, or if we can, they can grow in aquariums or, or tanks. And we're still working on that data, but they really just seem to do well in a, in a large tank, in a big group, and, and, and again, just let them dictate their social hierarchy. And, um, and so we've got them back outside, and yeah, I mean, they spawn on a daily basis. Every day at sunset, we're getting you know, two to 3,000 eggs from, from a group of 20. So we're pretty confident and to be able to have that number of eggs every day. Uh, in our minds, it's only a matter of time until we're able to to solve the problem and then and then get this fish eating. We did get them eating uh, prior to to the broodstock experiment, but but now we we can't even get a, a larvae to first feed. So so uh, so we're fairly confident once we can get them to hatch again, but with with significant numbers and live to first feeding, that we're going to be able to rear some. And that in itself is just going to open up you know, the, the floodgates for all of that group of anthias. And, uh, and hopefully it'll be commercially viable, and these commercial producers will want to be able to repeat what we've done for, uh, for production purposes. The anthias, these micro-groupers, they're, they're kind of tricky in, in other, other regards as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the, um, you know, some of the sex challenges that you've had with them? Right, um, and we still, you know, I hate to say anything because I, I, we don't really have any data to back it up. But they're protagonist hermaphrodites, so so they start as females and then they go to males, and we're still trying to tease that apart. We we, we had a real problem with keeping. We, we ended up with a lot of males. Let's just say that with keeping them in female, uh, in, in that in that female state, um, they ended up even in a harem of five where we had we, we would have one male and four four females. It just seems like we would end up with two or three males after a, a month or two. Now whether they actually changed from female to male or whether they were just juveniles as females and then they just grew up into a male you know we just we're not able to tease that apart but it did seem to end up as a as a male dominant population which is fine because all we need is is a couple of females but as far as running those broodstock experiments it was very problematic in, in the beginning so that sounds like another big challenge i, I think i from what i understand a lot of the marine Aquarium fish really do have this kind of sex change capability and makes that even another hurdle that you've got to kind of deal with, I guess, right? Yeah, most Absolutely. of the time, uh, sex change is actually advantageous. Um, in the case of clownfish, all you have to do is buy two, and, you know, when they grow up, they form a heterosexual spawning pair. Um, in the case of the antheus, it's actually really interesting. We have learned a lot with, with the antheus, but e- even though there are so many males out there, it seems like there's only a few that are sexually mature and actually functioning as reproductive males. Uh, so like, like Eric said, he gave a great, great explanation of what's happening back there. But it's really exciting just how much we're actually learning in, in, a, in a short time frame here. I know this has just been a lot of preliminary work, although you guys have made some incredibly great strides with your collaborators and, and all the partners involved with the Rising Tide Conservation Initiative. I, I understand you guys are also building additional facilities. Can you maybe mention some of that and where you hope to go with it? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're building a, a whole new greenhouse in the back. I'm not sure how many square feet it is. But right now, our saltwater space is kind of spread out among a, a few different buildings. 
so hopefully in the next couple of months we're going to get a, an entire new greenhouse dedicated to the marine ornamental production. And uh, I think we're going to, once that happens, we're going to make some pretty big advances in a lot of different things. So we're really excited to have that happen. So Eric yeah. and I have been out playing in the dirt, making concrete. And, uh, yeah, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and, and it gives us an, an opportunity to really build from the ground up, literally, but to also just implement ideas that, that we want to accomplish. And, and also, you know, to keep focused as to what, you know, U.S. goal is as a land-grant university is to make this uh, possible for, for commercial industry and, and for the public. And so um, and to not get too carried away with trying to do something that's impossible to do, but make it possible. So, yeah, it, it's very exciting. It's been a lot of construction, uh, you know, not just the greenhouse, but also, in, you know, inside the hatchery, making the live seat facilities. And it's been a lot of construction, a lot of, uh, as they call it, Legos for adults. It's real fun. I, I, I've had a good time doing it. So. You know, and I also almost forgot to mention, you've been doing a lot of experiments at home as well. You just had a, a baby, didn't you, Eric, recently? I did have a baby. I, I had this, It's my second one. So a uh, third one, and I'll have, uh, I'll have replicates. <laughs> well, congratulations on the new uh, on the new new baby and the new addition thank to your you. family. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank very much our guests Eric Cassiano and Matt Winrich, and our producer Mark Winter for making the show possible. Eric and Matt, did you have any final words for our listeners? You know, just thank you, Roy, for doing this. This is a really it's a really neat thing. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yeah, really, thank you, Roy, and I really wanted to thank all of our in- industry partners. You know, again, this is a hugely inspiring time to see so many dedicated people involved in this in this mission of uh, kind of coming up with the next step in raising these marine ornamental fish. And, and I really see high hopes for the future, and, and I think we're gonna we're gonna come up with some pretty big uh, accomplishments soon. So, thank you. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. We'll uh, be sure to put some pictures up of some of the species and different life stages and equipment that. Eric and Matt have been using for their research. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, buy more fish, and keep your tanks and fish healthy. And keep an eye out for new aquaculture marine fish species. They may be coming from the Rising Tide Conservation Initiative. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.